If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. Hello and welcome to History's Greatest Mysteries. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This is episode one of the series, and today we're going to be discussing a story that involves one of Britain's greatest mystery writers. In December 1926, the author Agatha Christie vanished for 11 days, only to reappear in decidedly strange circumstances. She never offered an explanation for what happened, and historians continue to argue about what might have accounted for the missing 11 days. For this episode, I was joined by the historian, author and broadcaster Dominic Sambrook to try to get to the bottom of this historical conundrum. To begin with, could you tell us a little bit about Agatha Christie around the time that she disappeared? What what kind of life was she living and how was her career going at that point? So the year is 1926 and um, Britain and indeed much of the world is in the the grip of kind of whodunit mania. So it's eight years after the end of the First World War. The world has seemed incredibly disordered. 
And it's a very violent world. The map of Europe is constantly changing. There's a Bolshevism in Russia, sort of the shock of modernity and modernism in the arts and all these kinds of things. So it's a quite an unsettling world. And in this world, sort of middle-class people in particular have a thirst for detective stories because detective stories kind of deal with the violence, the uncertainty of the world, but they they make it easy to cope with. They resolve it. You know, there's a killer and then you find the killer and order is restored. And of all the practitioners in the 1920s, probably the most famous, certainly the most famous today, but also at the time, is Agatha Christie. So Agatha Christie in 1926 is, what is she? She's about 35, 36. She has written about five or six books. So she's she's come in, I, I guess, she's not one of the pioneers of this new genre, the whodunit, but she has come in at the end of the First World War with The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which was a great success. And then she's written about four or five more. Um, her most recent book, published in 1926, I think, is um, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is still today by literary scholars and aficionados of the genre regarded as probably the best um, whodunit or the most intriguing whodunit because there's a, there's a trick in it, which I won't spoil for readers, mm. which is incredibly clever and cunning and which you don't really see coming unless you've been forewarned which turns the whole formula on its head it's an, it's an astoundingly clever thing to do and um I, I, as good an example of literary trickery as you'll find in the in the 20th century so there's Agatha Christie she's sort of at the peak of her powers really she's become a household name because her books are selling incredibly well she has rivals you know Dorothy L Sayers and so on but Christie's the simplicity of her prose and the cunning of her plots um, has endeared her to this gigantic audience well yeah, a very broad audience but by and large if you were sort of going to say what kind of audience it was it's, it's women and it's middle class women and um she everything seems to be rosy in the Christie household. So she and her husband Archie, who's a former World War One pilot, a kind of rakish, handsome, kind of rakish sort of fellow who now works in the city. They have a house called Styles, named after her first book, in Sunningdale in Berkshire. It's a it's a big house. It's, it's weird actually. In preparation for this podcast, I don't like people to think that I don't prepare for these podcasts. I was I was looking at the sale particulars from this house from the 1920s, which which were online somewhere. And it's a, a massive great house. It's a real kind of stockbroker's mansion. They have a tennis court and so on. Um, it's very, very kind of genteel and and very much the sort of upper middle class fantasy. It's right next to the golf course. Archie plays a lot of golf and Christie had already published a book called Murder on the Links. So those sort of middle-class 1920s pastimes play a big part in her books. So there they are in this house, but but something is not rosy. And what that is, is that in Agatha Christie's books, people always think, oh, the plots are very convoluted and they are very, you know, sort of recherche and there's all kinds of wacky and weird things going on. But often, almost always in the books, those things are smoke screens. And at the core of her murder stories are always really two things. It's either financial greed or sexual jealousy, particularly the latter. So infidelity, people with affairs, all these sorts of things. And this is the case with her life too. So Archie, her husband, they have one daughter, by the way, Rosalind. 
I'll come back to her maybe later. So Archie is a bit of a bad boy. He's a bit of a, a, a he's a he's a gay dog, in, as people might have said at the time. He's um, a bit of a philanderer, and for, he has been associating with a younger woman called Nancy Neal. And I think Agatha Christie probably had suspicions about what was going on. Um, Nineteen twenty-six has actually, despite the tremendous success of her of her literary career, has been pretty grim to her. So she's not getting on brilliantly with Archie. She's got her suspicions about him. In April and the spring, her one surviving parent, her father died when she was 11. Uh, her one surviving parent, her mother, her elderly mother dies. She has to go and clear out the house and take care of the estate and all these kinds of things, which you know nobody enjoys doing that. So that's quite a big blow to her. And then in August, we don't know exactly why would we? We don't know exactly how, why um, this happened. But clearly things between Agatha and Archie came to a head. Either she found something out or he just made a clean breast of it or whatever. But he basically says to her, I'm, you know, I'm I'm carrying on with this younger woman, Nancy Neal. Um, I'm in love with her. I, I, I want out kind of thing. And she's shocked. But for the, uh, a few weeks, a few couple of months, really, nothing happens. So they're still together under the same roof. Relations are pretty bad. The world doesn't know about it. She just seems to be this all-conquering detective novelist. Um, and then you get to the beginning of December 1926, and that's when the mystery begins to unfold. Okay, so so we're in December 1926. Um, so when exactly did she disappear? On what day, what time of day? And, and how quickly was this disappearance noticed? So it's the 3rd of December, dark, cold night, suitable for a, for a mystery story. And it seems that the two of them had had an argument earlier that day. Uh, I think it's a Friday. Archie says he's going to spend the weekend with friends, not with Agatha. Obviously, from Agatha's point of view, this is not really what she wants to hear when he says friends. She probably assumes he means Nancy Neal. So she's at home, she's working late, and she seems to have gone upstairs kissed her sleeping daughter goodnight, left a note for the secretary, for her husband's secretary, saying, these are the plans for the next few days, this is the diary. And then she just vanishes. She leaves the house. She gets into the car. It's late. They, when Archie discovers she's gone, he discovers she's taken the car. And she drives off into the darkness. And that is the last anybody sees of her. So it's as though she's disappeared from the face of the earth. And, of course, you can imagine the the excitement, the furore, the press attention, and, and all the rest of it. So what steps were taken after her disappearance to try to locate her? Well, it very, very quickly becomes a story. So this is a he- the heyday of kind of popular journalism, if you like. You've got, you know, newspapers selling tens of millions of copies, you have sort of tremendous press attention and scandals. It's a heyday of the 1920s of sort of scandals and cause celebre and these kinds of things. So that the papers like the Daily Herald, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Mail and so on, they are all over it within days. And, um, it be, you know, it be- starts to become a front page story, not just in England, but but across the world. So in American papers as well, because her books have sold very well in America. So basically, you know, Mrs. Christie vanished. Mrs. Christie disappeared. These stories start to appear day after day. And of course, 
why wouldn't you find it fascinating? It's such a brilliant story. You know, the the queen of crime, the great mystery writer, is herself at the center of this sort of fascinating mystery. And um, people start pitching up at the house. They're going to look for clues and they're going to find what's happened to her. Um, the Home Secretary, William Joynton Hicks, he says to the police, you know, this is a massive story. You know, we, you must find her as quickly as possible. The British police look look foolish in the eyes of the world. So the story completely snowballs out of control. Just We always think about this, by the way, from Agatha's perspective. But if you think about it for a second from Archie Christie's perspective, you know, he obviously feels a bit, <laughs> a bit guilty that he's he's been behaving badly. His wife has just completely, who is a, well, national, you know, household name, has just completely vanished. He probably thinks she's killed herself. I mean, that's what I suspect what a lot of people deep down thought, that she had gone off and killed herself. So he must feel absolutely awful stuck in this big house with his daughter and the secretary and so on, surrounded by the press while all this is going on. It must have been an utter, utter, utter nightmare for him. Anyway... The newspapers start to offer rewards. I think they offer £100 rewards and so on. People talk about hiring planes to fly over the landscape to kind of, you know, of course, time where people are very excited about planes. At one point, they have, I think, te- between ten and 15,000 volunteers pitch up, I think the following weekend, to sort of scour the area. Now, in a, a sort of very Christie-esque touch, there's a pool, there's a little sort of pond nearby called the Silent Pool, where two children are supposed to have drowned um, in the past. So all these sort of thousands of volunteers are scouring the area around the pool looking for clues. They find, you know, a teddy bear, some children's books, a shoe, all these these things that look that sound like, you know, Poirot is kind of laying out all the clues for one of Christie's mysteries. Uh, but no joy, no joy. Dorothy L. Sayers, one of her big rivals, she comes onto the scene, I think probably... Uh, sort of suborned by a newspaper to you know study the clues and to say what she thinks has happened and um most sort of satisfyingly for connoisseurs of the bizarre sir arthur conan doyle you know the grand old man of detective fiction creator of sherlock holmes but now completely obsessed by spiritualism and the occult he gets one of christie's gloves and he gives this to a a, a medium and says can you can you locate you know, the missing woman, and the medium can't, needless to say. So the story, it's a story with legs, you know, it's a story that's taking these sort of bizarre turns, but all the time, there's no trace of her. There is the car, the car has been abandoned by a, ch- a chalk pit, but there's no Christie, and there's no clues in the car about where she might have gone after apparently crashing the car by this pit. So time goes by, day nine, day 10, day 11, and then miraculously, she reappears from the dead. So you mentioned that her husband may have thought that Agatha Christie had killed herself. Yeah. What were the main theories being put about for her disappearance prior to her being discovered? Well, you see, the thing is that, of course, nobody reports the domestic drama that has preceded this. Not surprisingly, Archie himself is not really keen for that to be splashed all over the newspapers. So as far as the reading public are concerned, this is a sort of successful novelist in a happy marriage with a young daughter who has just inexplicably vanished. Um, I think to people close to the case, they obviously think all is not right in the Christie household and she may have, you know, done herself in or run away or that's probably what's going on. But from the public's point of view, it's just an utter mystery. 
I mean, I, I think probably the, the most common explanation, which you see a lot in the newspapers at the time, is that it must be a publicity stunt. So some people are very cynical about it, and they say, she must have planned this. This is all just to get publicity for her next book. I mean, don't forget, that's not wholly implausible. The 20s is a great age of publicity stunts. Detective fiction is a very kind of cutthroat, competitive business, so it would kind of make sense to do a publicity stunt. There's a lot of talk, particularly when the car is found, people say, well, she's." there's a rumour that she's got a new book called Murder on the Downs, I think. Um, it's on these sort of chalk downs. And um, that this must, this has all been planned to sort of drum up publicity for her new book. I mean, that's not true at all. But that's probably the most common of all the explanations. Um, but other than that, people are completely baffled. They have no, because they don't know the backstory, you see. At Outback Steakhouse, your wish is our command. Back by popular demand, steak and lobster at a special price starting at $19.99. Come enjoy our bold centre-cut sirloin seasoned with our signature blend of 17 spices and paired with a buttery, succulent lobster tail. Hurry into Outback Steakhouse where your steak and lobster wishes come true at a price you can't miss. Steak and lobster, starting at $19.99. No rules, just right. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. And so coming on to her reappearance, I mean, the circumstances of that are unusual, to say the least. What can you tell us about her rediscovery? Having, you know, the police, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Dorothy L. Sayers on the case, um, the irony is the man who kind of cracks the case, as it were, is a, is a banjo player from Harrogate, um, whose name is Bob Tappin. And he plays the banjo in a band at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel, the Swan Hydros is called, in Harrogate in Yorkshire. So just to give you a bit of context on that, Harrogate's image now is, is quite a sort of genteel place where you go for sort of buns and tea and stuff in if you're on holiday in Yorkshire. That was slightly its image in the 20s, but it's a bit cooler than that, actually. I mean, in an age when people don't go abroad in such numbers, Harrogate is quite a, a glamorous place to go. So you go to Harrogate, they have a, you take the waters, it's a spa town, and you stay in one of the sort of quite grand hotels like the Swan Hydro, and you spend your time dancing and having tea and sort of flirting with people in the cocktail lounge or whatever. And this is a very, very um, popular thing to do among the sort of the, the moneyed classes, if you like. So Bob Tappan is playing his banjo in the band, and he sees this lady there, and he says, well, that's, that's Agatha Christie. And... Um, you know, some people doubt him. But anyway, he goes to the, the authorities, the, the police, and he says, well, this is Agatha Christie. And it is. Now, a very strange thing then happens. Archie Christie, 
pitches up. He's he's summoned and he goes all the way up to Arrogant. And there is indeed is, is Agatha Christie. And um he says that she, you know, didn't seem to know who she was or what was going on. She seemed to have completely lost her memory. Um he says very bizarrely that when he came to fetch her, she said, well, you you know, wait downstairs in the lobby. I, I need to go and change into an evening gown, which she does. And then she comes downstairs, a sort of weird detail. And then he takes her home and he says, well, she had a bow on the head or something when she was driving the car and she suffers amne- she suffered amnesia, forgot who she was, forgot where she was, checked into this hotel in Harrogate and, and sort of, you know, I mean, she wasn't, you know, hiding in a room. She was going around the hotel, you know, having tea with people, chatting away, very, apparently very friendly. So it's a very weird state of affairs. And since then, a lot of people have said, well, did she suffer amnesia? Was she in a, a fugue state? This is one of the sort of popular explanations by sort of amateur amateur medical experts. They say maybe she was in a kind of trance Maybe she was hit on the head and went up to Harrogate and spent 11 days eating buns and going to the ballroom and stuff. I mean, whether Archie believed this is a different matter. We'll come to that. He takes her back home. You know, she disappears from view. Uh, not unpredictably, they end up um, getting... I think they they she goes off to Spain, to the Canary Islands. That's right, she goes to Las Palmas uh, for a break to get away from the press attention with her secretary and her daughter. And then three months later, she comes back home to England. And surprise, surprise, she and Archie get a divorce. He settles down with Nancy Neal, the younger woman, with whom he remains for the rest of his life, by the way. And um, Agatha Christie keeps custody of the daughter, Rosalind. She keeps the name Christie because obviously she needs to keep it because that's the name under which she's achieved all this fame. And then she goes off traveling and she meets an archaeologist and some acts Mallowan, and she becomes ends up becoming Lady Mallowan, and you know has this incredibly stellar career. But there's always at the heart of it these eleven days, these so-called mysterious eleven days. And I have my own theory. I mean, it's not really a theory. It just seems to me blatantly obvious and kind of common sense. Now there was one more clue, Rob. There's always one more clue. This clue is that when she checked into the hotel in Harrogate, she didn't check in obviously as Agatha Christie because otherwise it would have been easy to find her. She checks in under the name Mrs. Tressa Neal from Cape Town. Now, Neal is obviously the surname of her husband's girlfriend, Nancy Neal. And so this has, you know, had sort of uh, amateur psychologists in a great sort of tizzy. Why did she use the name? What was going on there? And um, would you like me to now summon you into the drawing room and give you my give you my theory that would be fantastic i know you'd love that i can tell from your face you'd absolutely yes. love that um so to me it just the whole thing i don't understand why people think there's a mystery because it just seems so blindingly obvious she's had an awful year her mother has died her last surviving kind of relative her husband who she's had suspicions about for a long time she's discovered he a he's having an affair b he wants to leave her and the marriage is over so her life is being torn apart. She's under tremendous pressure. She's a public figure, so it'll be a big story. It seems blindingly obvious to me that on the night of the 3rd of December, she kind of cracked 
I mean, that sounds harsh, actually. I think completely understandably, she she just had had enough. I suspect, knowing human nature, she probably didn't know exactly what she wanted to do. She might have thought of killing herself. She might have thought of running away. She might have thought, if I do something, it'll embarrass Archie and it'll bring him to his senses and he'll come running back to me. None of us will ever know whether she thought about this as coherently as that, or whether it was just she was in a complete state. She drives off, she abandons the car, you know, it all going, you can imagine the scene, you know, it's dark, it's, everything's going wrong. She might have crashed into something, she might not. She ends up in a, she's confused, she gets on a train, she doesn't know where to go. I mean, if you're confused and in a mess, you, you're, you're going to get on the train and probably go somewhere you know, or somewhere quite nice. You're not going to say, well, I'm, you know, without being rude to Grimsby, I'm off to Grimsby for the week. I mean, you're probably going to go somewhere where you've, you can check into a nice hotel or something. So she goes up there. When she comes to check in, is it a joke that she writes Neil, her sort of rival's name? Is it a dig at her husband? Does she even know herself? I think she probably doesn't even know herself. It's just the name that's ringing in her ears again and again. So it's the first thing she thinks of. And maybe it's a sort of black bit of black humour almost. And then she's there. And the thing is, once she's there and the story has broken, she can't kind of declare herself. You know, people sort of say, well, why didn't she give herself in? Why didn't she say, oh, when she saw that people were talking about it? But, I mean, how could she? She's kind of stuck. She's trapped. She'd have to explain it. She probably just thinks, I'll keep going. It's a bit like a, a child who's, I don't know, stolen some sweets or something. And there's a point at which they just think, sod it, I'm going to eat all the sweets. You know, I, I, I'm i just going to hide behind the sofa and hope, hope no one ever notices. Well, this is, I think, what she was like in Harrogate. She's gone up there. She knows there's a big manhunt. But she just sort of thinks, well, like, I'm, I'm stuck with it now. I'm just going to ride this out and see how long I can get away with it. And then Archie comes to, to, to get her, and it's all very embarrassing. And I think she... She obviously humiliates him in a, in, a, in a sort of small private way by making him wait downstairs while she changes, you know, rather than throwing herself into his arms. She's cross with him. And then they go back and it's obvious that the marriage can't be repaired and that's why it ends as it does. But I don't think you need to sort of, I don't think there's any need to develop these elaborate convoluted explanations about amnesia and so on. I think it's it's completely humanly comprehensible that she suffers this, I don't know whether breakdown is the right word, but there's this episode when it's just all too much and everything is unraveling and she feels under tremendous public and private pressure. And so off she goes up to Harrogate. And it's interesting that in her autobiography, I mean, people always comment on this. They say, here you have, I mean, Agatha Christie is not just any writer. She is by far the best-selling writer, not just that Britain has ever produced, but the world has ever produced. She's the most translated her books are in every single country. She is colossally, sort of titanically successful and popular. So no wonder it's a big story. But in her autobiography, she doesn't really allude to it at all. She just doesn't even mention it. She says, you know, it was a year of sorrow and heartbreak, and then she just moves smoothly on. So it's an episode that she doesn't want to um, revisit. Now, that to me is another quite telling clue. Had it genuinely been an episode of amnesia, had she genuinely suffered something almost medical, a, a mysterious, you know, ailment or whatever, then she almost certainly would have mentioned it in her autobiography because people do. She would have said, this extraordinary thing happened to me. 
You know, one moment I was in Berkshire in this stockbroker's house, and the next minute I was in Harrogate under a different name. How weird. And I've never understood why that was. But she doesn't do that. She just, uh, you know, glides over it. And I think the, the fact that she glides over it suggests to me that it's something that she feels immensely embarrassed about, possibly guilty, which suggests to me that she was not amnesiac at the time, but that it was something she was conscious of what she was doing. And she was in a state and she made, as she would probably later say, bad decisions and ended up bringing down the sort of attention of the press on her. And 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 obviously she doesn't want it raked over afterwards because she's embarrassed about it. And I think that's, I mean, to me, the mystery is why people think there is a mystery. And sort of, I think people project a mystery onto it. And actually, in human terms, it's a completely comprehensible and very, probably a very traumatic episode. And you, you said that she never discussed this in her autobiography. Yeah. At the time she was discovered, was she asked for an explanation? Did she give any reason for what happened? I think she doesn't really uh, talk to the press at all. She's kind of cut off. As I recall, as soon as it happens, she goes to her sister's house. They don't answer the phone. She doesn't answer press inquiries. And then, as I said, she goes off to the Canary Islands. So no, she doesn't give the sort of, today, you'd have to post a little statement on Twitter and before giving an interview to kind of mail online explaining what what had gone on but 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 at the time there's no communication with the press really at all it's just you know mrs christie has been ill she's had this terrible thing happen to her she'd like privacy now um and and that's the story so no she never really talks about it at all at all and do you feel it's just a coincidence that this great mystery writer was herself involved in a great mystery you don't think that was a, either a publicity stunt, or B, this idea of creating a mystery was in her mind somehow? That's a good question, Rob. Um, I think particularly the latter. So the publicity stunt, I completely reject that idea. Christie has no real history of publicity stunts. She also has no history of um, of exposing her family to the public eye unnecessarily. So she's quite a private person afterwards. The evidence of her autobiography also suggests she's a very private person. So the publicity stunt is completely out of character. It does get her publicity and it probably does add to her book sales. But I don't think that's, it just seemed, you know, it's just such a bizarre thing to do. I mean, you know, I'm going to disappear for 11 days and pitch up and and hotel in Harrogate under a false name. Knowing book published publicists as I do, if I pitch that to my publicist at Penguin, I think they'd be a bit bamboozled. Did it occur to her to stage a mystery because she was a mystery writer Again, I, 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 that's an interesting question, but I think probably the answer is no, because I think that assumes too much planning. You know, I don't think this is, as it were, a premeditated crime. Um, what I, I, I do think, though, is that uh, if you're going to look at a link between this episode and her books, I mean, I said earlier on that people often have completely the wrong idea about Agatha Christie. So people who, who want to dismiss her often say, oh, she has these ridiculously convoluted plots and... You know, um, there's no psychological acuity in the books and all these kinds of things. But actually, one of the great things about Agatha Christie is the sort of complexity of the plots is is really there as a kind of blind. It often confuses you. And actually, often, when the detective strips all that away and they say, let's get to the, 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 the nuts and bolts of the case, you know, Poirot or Miss Marple, they quite often say in the in the text that they'll sort of say, 
you know, crime is very simple. Human nature is very simple, and it revolves around a few very, very basic, almost banal things, you know, greed, love, fear, and so on. And to me, the the parallel between the work and the and the life is that at bottom, this appears, you know, this appears to be this typically Christie-like, convoluted, weird, extravagant story. But at bottom, I think it's absolutely simple and basic, something that probably millions of people can kind of recognize, actually. Somebody who's suffered betrayal and heartbreak, who's just kind of lost it. And they're, they're behaving kind of irrationally. I mean, which of us has not done something vaguely similar or known somebody who's done something vaguely similar at some point, you know, after an argument or after a a breakup or whatever. So I think that's what it is. And when she writes her books and she has these convoluted stories and then at the uh, at the base of it is something very basic and human. I mean, she knows that from her own life because her own life, the love triangle, by the way, is one of her absolutely central devices. She uses it again and again in her books. And of course, a lot of her biographers have said, well, one reason why she uses it so much is not just because it resonates with so many of her readers, but also because it formed the most traumatic part of her own life. So that, I think, is the parallel between sort of the the lived experience and the, and the stuff of her fiction, that she, she, I'm not saying she used this in her books or that she based it on the stuff that she'd already done, but I just think she had known what it was like to kind of be human and to experience passion and heartbreak and stuff. And she put that into the books, and that's often at the core of all her detective fiction. Um, and actually, once you know that that happened to her, then when you read the detective fiction, um, you can often see it, you know. And, and the psychological, I mean, I think her books are massively underrated. And, and her sense of human nature, I think, is is from somebody who 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 knew what you know jealousy was and, and disappointment and all those kinds of things. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. <laughs>